Hi and welcome to Profoundly. I'm your host Pips Taylor and this podcast harnesses the wisdom of a one-of-a-kind global community. Profoundly is for women who want to grow, learn, connect and thrive. Each week I'll be chatting to industry leaders and experts in our network. We'll be giving you a taster of what Femme Foundry is all about and I'll be joined by guests to discuss burning issues for us today and sharing their life experience and inspiring us to just be. Femme Foundry is a one-stop digital space for anyone who identifies as a woman to connect, learn, unite and belong freely on their own terms. With this podcast, we'll be bringing our leaders to you, sharing industry expertise, personal stories and advice to help you navigate every element of your life, from the professional to the very personal. No jargon, no filters, just open, honest conversation. This is real talk about the issues that affect real women, along with expert guidance, informed analysis and honest discussion. You are very welcome here. If you want to just listen, we hope that you'll find something to inspire, educate, challenge or spark your curiosity. And if you want to join the debate, connect with our guests or find out more by adding your voice to our global community at FemFoundry, our doors are always open. We're here to start the conversation, but we're hoping you'll be the ones to finish it. Welcome to the club. In this episode, I'm joined by amazing TV and radio presenter Natalie Pinkham. Natalie is a familiar face and voice for sports fans in particular. She's presented everything from the Highland Games and Goodwood Festival of Speed to the European Poker Tour, but she's best known as the Formula One pit lane reporter for Sky Sports. Earlier this year, she became the first woman to commentate on a Formula One session on British television when she led Sky's commentary of first practice at the 2021 Bahrain Grand Prix. Trigger warning, this episode includes discussion around miscarriage and baby loss. For support on any of these issues raised today, please visit tommies.org. Natalie speaks candidly about her experience of pregnancy loss and losing a twin. Natalie is a mother of two and a patron of the charity Hope and Homes for Children that she became involved with after what she describes as a life-changing encounter with a little girl in a Romanian orphanage and she'll be sharing the story behind that encounter and where it led her as well as some fascinating insights into the world of F1 and much, much more. Natalie, welcome to Profoundly. Thank you so much for coming on Profoundly. You are iconic on the Formula One scene, Natalie. You've been there and and grafting for for so long and you're it's it's brilliant to see a woman, such a successful woman on the F1 scene. Have you always had such a big love for motorsport and for F1? Well, funnily enough, I actually only started enjoying it because I wanted to hang out with my big brother, Sam. So Sam was always into it and he loved cars and he used to take them apart. I remember having this old uh, scrappy old car that was like literally on the scrap heap and he would like tinker away with it and I would sit and watch him do it. And then he and dad would talk about F1 and mum and I sort of lent in and started getting involved in the conversation. We found it's a really good bonding exercise as a family to to watch sport together. So we watched uh, Formula One, Rugby Special and Ski Sunday. That was appointment to view television growing up and the athletics. But these were the things that structured our weekend and it meant spending time together as a family. And then it kind of grew from there. And then when I got offered the job as a pit lane reporter for BBC Five Live, my brother nearly fell off his chair because he was like, hang on a minute, <laughs> you are nicking my dream job right there. Um, and then he sort of lived vicariously ever since. He loves it. And he gets to come to some of the races. And, you know, it's the second best thing for him to have a sister that does it. 
So obviously the sports industry in F1 has been really affected by the pandemic over the 18, past 18 months. How's that been for you? It's been a really, really interesting and insightful exercise into the sort of mechanics of our sport. It's been hugely impressive. I've been really proud of the way that F1's conducted themselves. to Go racing at all in a pandemic because if you think by the very nature of what we do we are a thousand strong community that is going to every corner of the earth so we're the worst nightmare for coronavirus if one person in our camp gets it it spreads like wildfire I say we they I can't really take any credit for it but they were able to um, develop a sort of infrastructure which protected both ourselves the drivers and the fans. Obviously, we had to go behind closed doors for a long time, but it was better than nothing. Yeah, Formula One have been incredible. And I think also it it goes to show that when the greatest minds in, in engineering can collaborate, great things can happen. I mean, every, everyone's kind of associates Formula One with glamour and parties and that's all gone. I mean, that's well and truly out the window. You can't even get a cup of tea in the paddock at the moment. No. It's a bloody nightmare. So when we were in Spa... Um, Anyone who's listening who watches Formula One will know that Spa was a complete washout. It was torrential rain for the whole weekend. and um, But we weren't allowed to go into any of the motorhomes. Normally, like pre-pandemic, we would like wander in, have a nice cup of tea in McLaren, have, uh, you know, a bit of pudding in Ferrari. It's, you just go up and down the pit lane, eating, drinking, talking to your mates. We can't do any of that now. So we couldn't even find shelter. We just stood under umbrella for eight hours for live broadcast. Wow. What I also really love with on the broadcast side is like you you cap you can see all the behind the scenes properly and you see everything as it's as it's happening and and it's like a, they're in their zone and 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 it, it, but it's presented to us and is is in such an entertaining way. It feels like it's proper behind the scenes stuff. Yeah, and I remember when I first started in the sport, I was always very conscious about where to stand, and I kept thinking, oh, I'm walking in and out of other. Uh, crew shots so like I'd be like oh no I'm so sorry just walked into the back of the German shot or whatever um or, or I'm just wandered into French television broadcast it doesn't matter that is part of the thrill of it and as you say I think to be able to bring that to viewers is an honor a privilege um and something that I love doing because it's proper finger on pole stuff and I, and I also think about it when the drivers are just about to immerse themselves in the cockpit of the car and go racing we can stick a mic in there and just talk to them. I mean, what yeah. other sport can you do that? Just imagine, like, what is going through their heads when they're, do you know what I mean, when they're about to do they're that? They're probably thinking, I'm... please don't come and interview me. <laughs> I hope that annoying <laughs> girl doesn't ready. come up with her mic. Hello, it's only me. <laughs> only me. <laughs> <laughs> do you know, quite often, because I have asked them all that question, um, and it's it's quite a meditative state. They kind of want to go into a zone, and they quite often listen to music. If you think about what they actually do, it's superhero stuff, isn't it? Yeah. And they go at extraordinary speeds and the risk versus reward thing is ever present. Now, this year, you became the first woman to commentate on a Formula One session on the British on British TV on Sky. It was the Bahrain Grand Prix 2021. How did that feel? Well, it was really out of my comfort zone because I love to talk about F1 in the sense that I like to sort of be a conduit for the fans. And I think what I was doing was panicking that I was having to step into Crofty's shoes and be an actual commentator and emulate his craft, which, by the way, he's, you know, honed over 20 years. So very difficult to do. 
Um, and then I quickly realised that actually I was just bringing something slightly different, hopefully, to it and asking layman's questions in a way of the two former drivers that are alongside me in the commentary box. So you are building the picture and the narrative for the race, which is going to happen a couple of days later. And it's been brilliant, though. I mean, uh, I do remember going to Imola only a couple of races after Bahrain. And I was with Anthony Davidson and Damon Hill. And Ant is one of my best friends um, in Formula One. He is just a joy to be around, as is Damon. And Damon's obviously a world champion. And, you know, I was thinking I couldn't be in better hands here. Everything's going to be great. And I could hear the director in my ear go five, four, three. And on two, all the pitches went, comms went everything went it was a blank because you know what it's like in a gallery you've got like 20 screens in front of you yeah nothing on any of them and it turns out that a local Italian engineer had drilled through a fiber optic cable circuit cut off everything (laughs) and was like what could possibly go wrong with this and literally he's like mouthing just happened yeah and I'm going I don't know I was like and I thought well I've just got to carry on talking because I thought well I must still be going out over British television yeah Yeah, potentially and so I just carried on talking but I didn't have any pictures to go by so I had no idea what I was talking about but more seriously it cut everything on the pit wall so all the teams couldn't see where the drivers were on track and two of the cars crashed oh god because they weren't able to say Sergio Perez is is up ahead at the next turn. And he just came around the corner too quickly and hit, hit him. Oh, so it just goes to show how much we rely on pictures and communications. But I tell you what, baptism of fire or what? I know that is a total fact. But are we hoping that's going to be the first of many? The feedback I've had has been so positive just to have a female voice in such a male-dominated world. And I've been anchoring some of the races as well this year. And it's it's just great. And do you know what really kind of, heartens me in all of this is the amount of messages I get from young women well do you know what this is something that I really want to touch upon because you've said in the past that obviously F1 as an industry is hugely lacking in diversity and it is dominated by men do you feel like this is changing I can't take any credit for it but I do feel a huge responsibility to leave the sport with more women in it than I found it and that won't be hard because there there really weren't many and it's getting marginally better but we've still got a long way to go I mean it's the stat is something astonishing like 88% male and 91% white wow and that is just in 2021 that is not acceptable is it? are you I mean obviously you, you know you've been working within the sport for years but are you kind of conscious of the fact that you're the only woman does it does does it bother you so I would regularly walk in at race weekend and only see one other woman in the room and wow. you know 90 men And that's very common, but that's not reflective of our audience. And that's the big issue that I have is that, you know, we have to be relatable on screen and we have to be relatable within the sport. You know, I'm talking team principles. I'm talking uh, in terms of the press, the drivers, catering, PR, engineering, mechanics, aerodynamicists. Every element of the sport has to have a representative amount of women in it and um, and people of different ethnic backgrounds because it's just, it's not good enough. And our audience 
is saying otherwise. You know, we have something like a 45-55 split in terms of women versus men who watch the sport. Wow. That's huge, isn't it? And yeah, I think it really you'd, is. you'd really you'd hope that that would be reflected in uh, you know on and on and off screen. What do you think what can the industry do to make uh, to make it more diverse and to be more representative? Well, I think at Sky we do have a responsibility to um to speak up to make the sport feel more accessible for women. So I think it's all about perception. I think there aren't that many little girls out there that think STEM subjects are for them. I don't know why, but they Mm. think, well, actually um, that's what boys do. And it's just not the case. You know, we need female brains in this sport because they offer so much. I'll give you a great example. Um, There is a, a, a strategist at Red Bull called Hannah Schmitz, who is brilliant. And she's just had a baby and she just came back off maternity leave. And at the, the 70th Grand Prix, I mean, it was a silly title, but we basically had two Grand Prix at Silverstone last year and Max Verstappen won it. And he won against the odds because uh, the Mercedes is a quicker car, but the Red Bull of Max Verstappen actually took the checkered flag and, and won the race. And it all came down to Hannah's strategy. And everyone has said you should start the race on the medium softer tyre, which was the quicker tyre. And she said, you know what, why don't we go against the grain, try an alternative strategy? And it worked. And it was a masterstroke. And it was a woman behind that decision. And I loved it because she was able just to bring in a different perspective. And she swears that the reason she's able to is because she is a working mum. But then it's down to us as broadcasters to tell her story, to show other women that this is a viable, accessible career option for them. And it's it's the environment in which they can thrive. I mean, obviously, you were, you know, you being one of the only women, was there any recognition from the industry at that point that that's that 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 you were an only woman? Was there any support for you or were you just kind of expected to kind of get on with it? I think. Probably more the latter, if I'm completely honest. You're just sort of thrown in and told to get on with it. But that's kind of quite a useful learning curve for me in as much as, um, you know, it's that sink or swim feeling that you have to embrace, I think, probably in any industry. And it's what toughens us up and makes us work harder and be better. Are the women in in, in motorsport kind of organisations and group bodies that that are supporting everyone who's who's working within the industry at the moment? There's a body of girls called females in motorsport that literally message me after every race going, go on, girl, you know, we're with you. And I love it. It is. It's it does energize you. It's um, and often when you've just had a, I mean, after the weekend that we've just had, it was a cold, wet, miserable race in Turkey. And I was knackered and I'm really missing the kids. And I was thinking, you know, I often have these little wobbles where I'm like, am I doing the right thing? You know, working as I do, you know, you have guilt as a mother that you're not doing a good enough job as a mom. And then you have guilt that you're not doing enough, good enough job at work. And then I got this message from this lady saying, do you know, my daughter was watching F1 today and she saw you and, and um, actually she just asked me, mummy, can I, can I go and work in F1 now? And she's yeah. sort of eight years old. And I thought, you know, that just that one message was enough to really buoy me and, and take me through the rest of the weekend. So um, I just think women supporting women is so crucial, but we do also have to have the support of men. And that is happening um, increasingly 
now, I'm proud to say. There's a lovely woman who's head of communications at F1 called Ellie Norman, and she's really passionate about driving diversity within the sport. And then the likes of Lewis Hamilton. When you talk to him, he's like, look, I'm not just talking about ethnic diversity. I am talking about gender and sexual orientation diversity. You know, we have to be able to feel an inclusive environment um, for anyone who's got the brains and application to want to work in the sport. I mean, obviously, you, you know, we've, t- we've touched on this. You're traveling an awful lot uh, with work. You know, you're kind of at, at races every every week in, in different countries. And having a job that involves lots of travel can be really challenging. How have you made it work? I think I'm really lucky that my husband is incredibly supportive of what I do. So there's there's total parity in our relationship. He recognises that my job is as important as his. Um, I also have great support from his mum and dad. They, they're always here when I'm not. So they the kids feel secure and safe and, and comfortable with me going away. And then I think it's just important to instill in your kids that you'll always come back and that mm. you're only away for a handful of nights at a time. And that when you are there, you're fully present and you're you're theirs. And the phones go down. Have you have they been to a race? Have you ever Yeah, they've been to, to a... loads. And actually, yeah. when I first had Wilf, um, I took him to like all the races with me because my mum came and we decided that we were going to treat this as like a, a unique bonding opportunity. So he she would bring him, they would have granny and grandson time while I went to work, and then in every evening we'd have food together and we'd like go on a bit of an adventure around whichever European city we were in and it's lovely mum made me this massive scrapbook of it you know Wilf's wonderful tours oh that's also such a nice thing to do but also having being able to actually do that and putting measures in place and more women can can do that and that's seen as a normal thing rather than as something that's that's you know oh I don't feel I could do that so I'm really pleased that you you kind of made that happen Hundred percent, and it's so interesting because um, you know it, it 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 wasn't easy. It isn't easy, but it is doable, and that is definitely something that I want to shout from the rooftops about. And the more we do it, the easier it will get. You know, there will be measures in place. Now, you have a, a really successful podcast called In the Pink, where you speak to a cross section of people about what makes them tick. So you've spoken to people like Richard Branson, Jensen Button, uh, the lovely Fleur East. Have you found any commonalities amongst these successful guests that does make them tick? Oh, good question. Um, I've sensed a a kind of can-do attitude in all of them and a spirit of adventure. There is a kind of uh, a certain aura about each of them that is kind of infectious. You want to talk to them. And I think that's kind of why I set the podcast up was because I love people and I just love meeting different types of people. I mean, honestly, it's aside from having kids, I think it's the best thing I've ever done. I've just really loved doing it. Um, I haven't done one for a few months now because I've been doing an F1 podcast specifically, you know, every week called F1 Nation, which is quite which is much more technical and it's much more. But I want to get back to the people because that's, you know, really ultimately what life's about what formula yeah. one's about is understanding the humans behind the sporting success would you say it has been your biggest learning on doing that podcast and, and doing it predominantly for, for you know for yourself and also for the stories I did so many through lockdown I felt it was an amazing opportunity to connect and share stories and I sensed the vulnerability in every single person I spoke to 
but a willingness to talk about that, uh, which was, you know, so important given what everyone was and still is going through. Yeah. I think that's the, the key thing that I've learned through all of this is just keep talking, keep communicating. There's no shame or weakness yeah. in burying your soul a little bit. You yeah. actually come away. I could, you know, sometimes you say things to people and you walk away kind of cringing, thinking, oh, have I said too much? And actually, I think that's been turned on its head now. The more people talk, the stronger they feel. One thing that I would love to touch upon if if you're happy to, uh, but this week marks uh, baby loss and pregnancy loss awareness week. And in the past, you've really bravely spoken publicly about your loss um, and that you were pregnant with twins and you lost one of the twins, uh, which I'm really sorry to, to hear about that. How important was it for you to share your experience and help others in a similar position? It's really strange because um, even you saying that kind of, I kind of wince slightly because I think, oh, I don't want pity. I don't deserve it. And, uh, you know, I lost, I had two miscarriages, but both very early. And I think that's not comparable to some of the stories of some very close friends of mine. Um, and family members that have been through far, far worse. But then I realized that actually until we sort of normalize talking about it, even if it is early in the pregnancy, you know, everyone feels different degrees of loss. And until we do make it um, the norm, if you like, to discuss these things, then women in far graver situations won't feel um, able to to come forward and, and and talk about what they've been through. So, I mean, I had one experience where I was at a wedding and I suddenly bled very, very heavily in the middle of a wedding. And the guy next to me, who I didn't even know, said, um, are you okay? And I said, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And he looked down. He said, there's, there's blood all over you. And I was like, oh my God, like, you know, it was horrific. And I said, look, can you, can you go and get my husband? And he did. And my husband sort of wrapped me up in his jacket, his, his morning coat and just bundled me out the back and went to hospital and, and, you know, and then the, the worst bit of it was, I know, is that the doctor then said to me, look, sometimes miscarriages can happen in two parts. So you can have a second part of the miscarriage and he said, I can't tell you when that will be, but it, it may well happen soon. And sure enough, I was on air. I was on air at the Italian Grand Prix and it happened. I started getting this incredible pain and I didn't feel able to tell anyone because I was all male crew and I just didn't, I didn't tell anyone. I just sort of took myself off afterwards and phoned home and yeah, anyway, dealt with it, went to see a doctor and it wasn't till sort of probably three months ago that I actually told my boss and he got quite emotional and said, why didn't you tell me? He since had kids. He didn't have kids at the time. He since had kids. And he said, why didn't you tell me? I said, you know, I honestly didn't feel like I could. And in that moment I was like, God, you know, if there's no shame, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything to deserve it. And yet I felt complete inability to talk about it. And I felt in a very male environment that it wouldn't be understood that I needed to just sort of get on with it. And um, I I do feel times have changed. And then fast forward to getting pregnant with Willow and then told I was having twins was like a joyous moment. And then 
losing one of the twins, it's really interesting how my husband and I dealt with it differently because when we went back and um, when I lost one, he was very happy and celebrating the fact that we still had one. And I was mourning the loss of the one that, that, that we didn't. And I thought that was just quite interesting that we looked at it from, and I was really crying and he was going, and he was almost sort of celebrating it, but we still have one. And he was absolutely right to. It's, it's experiencing a a loss and and it is a grief. You have to, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a a process and there's a, you know, there's a mourning to it. And I, I actually suffered a loss earlier this year and my, my partner and I, we, we dealt with it really differently because he was like, oh my God, at least we can get pregnant naturally because we'd been having such, you know, um, it, such issues, which I know people say, don't, don't ever say that to someone who's just had a, had a miscarriage. So he was really trying to be positive about it. Yeah. Whereas I was like, you know, in absolute pieces that actually that I wasn't able to, to, to hold on to it for whatever reason. I think it's so important for people to speak about these experiences to feel comfortable and you know hearing mm. your story that you you know weren't able to 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 mention to kind of people when you actually needed you know needed that support there and there mm. and then at work to to be going through something like that is it's it's really it's it's it breaks my heart. Mm. I I I mean just on our partners different reactions I think in a way it's good that they are able to bring the positives because imagine if they are sort of breaking down in the same way they are and I think that's just instinctive from them but I think the issue is that it's happening inside our bodies and we feel a type of failure in a way that our body wasn't able to support the fetus and that is that's wrong but I think that's just that's quite natural. Mm. I mean, I certainly felt like a, a bit of a failure, like, you know, what have I done wrong? And I was trying to go back over, you know, had I been working too hard or, you know, I don't know, doing something wrong, not being healthy enough with my diet or whatever. And actually it's, it's ridiculous. You you just have to accept that it's nature's way sometimes, but um, God, I mean, I've, I've had friends that have had terrible experiences, you know, gone full term and lost their babies. And um, it's absolutely brutal. And I don't think you ever recover from that. Mm-hmm. And um, But you you grow from it and you learn from it and hopefully you help others through that experience. My experience is like time is actually a really great healer. Like in, when you're in the thick of it, you, you really feel like there's nowhere that you can go from here. You know, you just have just kind of, you know, sitting with it and giving it the the air and and the sort of the the attention that and the emotion that it, it needs you know life life does go on uh, mm. with grief and, and with loss and it is learning to to sort of process it where we can but also to live with it yeah you know yeah what was it what what helped you when you were sort of in in those in those moments I think you're right just waking up the next day and getting on with it and just um throw myself it so when I I think and I think it's very common to have miscarriages between your babies isn't it after Mm. your first um you get I mean I got pregnant again very quickly um after Wilf and uh but throw myself into him so you know I was really lucky to already have a child that I was able to throw my energy into I, yeah, it's so hard, and it's actually something that I've become really passionate about, and have you know done a podcast all around fertility and helping people get pregnant uh, because I found it really, really challenging. And and I I just think when it comes to things like loss and miscarriage and and grief, it 
the more we talk about it, the less mm. isolating it is for women who are going through that or yeah. who know someone who's going through that. It is crazy, isn't it? It is crazy that the amount of women that have miscarriages and you find that out when you do talk. So I said, you know, me saying, I didn't know that you'd had one until I said it to you just then and, yeah. and, and vice versa. And and the amount of my friends that have had them and I go, well, why didn't you tell me? Well, you know, there's enough else going on in the world. It's, you know, we all lead busy, busy lives. It's just something you have to get on with. It shouldn't be. You know, I think I want to sort of try and change that and use my experience and and you know talk about it and hopefully normalize oh, it so brilliant. if anyone is listening um there will be a link at the end of the episode that I'll do for where you can find um help as well I hadn't revisited any of that for years and just talking about it I it it, it stirs up emotion and you realize it, it, just yeah you 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 kind of compartmentalize in life don't yeah, you because you have yeah. to because you're so busy and you put a lid on feelings and then you suddenly remember, Christ, that was a really difficult time. Thank you for opening the lid and for and, oh, for, no. and, for, and for sharing. Has it been difficult for you as a woman in the public eye to go through pregnancy and motherhood with a certain amount of press attention? I think I'm quite lucky that I'm kind of under the radar enough for it not to be a major issue. Um, and we, we, <laughs> we, I mean, I also I'm married to somebody that's not in in the public eye, and yeah. that definitely helps as well. Um, I think that um, it's just, you know, it's I I think I just put myself under the same pressure that any woman does, you know, be the best you can at whatever you do, and it's that's that can be quite relentless, can't it? Um, but it also energizes me to be busy but you just feel you know it's just lack of sleep isn't it mm. i think it's fundamentally just lack of sleep and broken night sleep you know even last night willow's like she's like me she sleeps very lightly and she's yeah. like, mommy mommy I'm like three o'clock this morning. Come on, get into bed with me. Let's have a cuddle. I know, and I love it. I secretly love it. But then you just, when the alarm goes at seven, you've got to drag them out of bed to get to school. <laughs> That's only going to get harder the older they get as well. Now, just uh, finally, something that I'd, I'd love to touch on. You're a real philanthropist and I, you give so much to issues that you really care about. And I really admire this about you. You are a patron for Hope and Homes for Children. And if you're okay to talk about it, I'd love to ask you about your story um, because you helped a little girl and you said that it changed your life. So in a nutshell, I'm going to have to condense 15 years into a couple of minutes here. But I worked um, when I had just left school in an orphanage over in Romania. And I found it, um, you know, a very steep learning curve for me about child welfare in as much as you'd arrive to work every day and you just assume that there were no kids there because it was quiet. And you quickly realised that there were hundreds of kids in there, but they learn very quickly not to cry because no one comes when they do. And it's brutal. So I'd walk in and I would see all these eyes looking back at me and children rocking because that is an instinctive thing for a child to do when they're not getting affection and self-harming because they want to feel something. So they will hit themselves. And um, anyone who wants to know more about this, get in touch with me because I'm so passionate about it. I then became particularly attached to one little girl called Morella. And I'd been warned not to do that because um, the time comes when you have to leave again and you're effectively abandoning the child all over again. They've learned to love. And it's kind of the old 
it's the old adage, is it better to have loved and lost or never loved at all? And actually, in a way, to love a child and then leave them again, that abandonment is um, just shattering for them. But I was, I did bond with her. And then I went away for about 10 years and was plagued by this niggly sort of guilt that I hadn't done more. I would send money, but that was about it. And in the end, I persuaded um, uh, Channel 5, actually, to go back to Romania with me to try and find her and basically use her story as a microcosm for a whole generation of children, tell um the story of all the lost children of Romania because Ceausescu's regime was such that they he banned all forms of contraception. So tens of thousands of unwanted children, and I hate using that word because all children are wanted, but children that couldn't be looked after were then abandoned by their own parents because the state said, well, we'll look after them. So it created these massive orphanage systems. Um, and... Uh, they were sort of considered to be the right answer because it was a roof over the head and three roughly pretty awful, but at least meals in their bellies every day. And so all these parents were um, believing that they were selflessly giving their child up for a better life. And actually what they were doing, condemning them to institutional care, which is far, far worse. Mm. And there've been studies that have shown that a lack of love you know, it's really all a kid needs, will make the brain actually shrink and life skills diminish. So when I did eventually go back with Channel 5 to look for Morella, I found her to be completely different to the child that I had seen 10 years before. So she couldn't walk, she couldn't talk, her hands were clawed, her head was slumped. She had been basically stripped of the life skills that she was building as a two-year-old, a healthy two-year-old. They were basically able to prove from this study that a lack of love, neglect, is the most damaging thing that will ever happen to a child. And, you know, if you ask a kid what they want, um, it's, it's a family, it's a structure, it's a, a sense of belonging, which is stripped from them um, by these orphanages. They didn't have any belongings. They had to rotate clothes. They had to shave their heads. So they had no identity and no sense yeah so anyway very very long story short I leveraged my position in Formula One so I went to people like Pirelli, Ferrari, McLaren and they all donated I became good friends with a guy called Paul Hembury who was the um, head of Pirelli um, and told him Morella's story and he said that he wanted to help me it actually turns out that he had been abandoned at birth that's Gosh. another whole story. You can make a movie yeah. about his life. He's, he's done so incredibly well. Um, and he was astonishingly helpful. He gave me £25,000 to start this foundation. And then I built on that, fundraised, built a home for Morella and um, adopted her. You can't internationally adopt. So I had to sort of adopt her within Romania, if you like. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, her story didn't, didn't, end well tragically um and she, it was a sort of grim legacy of the institutional care and that sounds like an oxymoron doesn't it but it's it, it's like a contradiction in terms of like the care isn't there in the institutions and that's what I work with Hope and Homes for now is to find alternatives um for children that have been abandoned or orphaned and 
that is invariably reconnecting them with their families Mm -hmm. in some shape or form you know nobody has a truly conventional family everyone every family has its quirks but tragically for Morella she um her digestive system was so underdeveloped from poor diet and neglect um that a, a carer in the home had given her um some meat and she choked on it she couldn't digest it and and her little heart gave up and in front of all the all the other kids it was just absolutely devastating that we'd worked so hard together to to get her out and to get her into a safe place and three months later she she sadly passed away but I'm determined more than ever to um work hard and make the, make this her legacy make institutionalization of children a thing of the past and that's what Hope and Homes does and they do it brilliantly I'm so proud to partner with them on it wow what an incredible story and that's also formed quite a huge part of your life. Oh, I'm so sorry that she didn't make it. I know. And do you know what? I felt so devastated because I felt like she finally had love. She mm. finally had a roof over her head. She finally had a garden that she could sit outside in and to be robbed of it only three months in. And it's quite interesting because when I went to see her um, in the, you know, in this little home that we built, um, she couldn't still couldn't talk but she grabbed my hand and she like led me around the house showing me everything she knew that it was all about her she yeah. knew and she was so sweet she was like showed me the garden and her toys and and she must must have been 15 by then but tiny tiny little thing so you didn't have a birth certificate so impossible to know exactly how old she she was but the neglect had taken such a toll and i and i i've never really forgiven myself for not intervening sooner and not not coming back into her life in time to truly make a difference. But I, I won't ever do that again. And I think that, you know, I'll try and teach my kids that this is this is what we're put on earth to do is to make a difference to, to other kids' lives that, you know, don't have the luxury and the the comfort of a family, you know, and we're, we're just so lucky to to have that, um, to have that structure and, and that love and that support network. Now, just finally, um, I want to go through. So we've got the the Fem Foundry pillars, which they are mental health, physical health, financial health, and spiritual health. So this is a little quick fire round. I love um, it, and I'd love for you to share your best piece of advice on each. So, how do you look after your mental health? Exercise. I think that is just. I remember. Look, you you were good friends with her too. I remember when we lost Caroline Flack, um, we went straight into lockdown, really struggled because we weren't able to connect with each other and her family and talk about it. And I had one just really crappy day. And I just remember going into the garden and um, it was pouring with rain and I did a hundred burpees. I know that sounds ridiculous. And of course the pain didn't go away about the loss of my friend, but it cleared my head our mental health is is so difficult especially when going through something uh, a grief or or a loss what has helped you apart from exercise um and also just talking I mean just just constantly talking and and I'm I'm actually um I'm so lucky to have a really good group of girlfriends and very close to my 
my mum, my my dad, my brother, we're a very close family and we just talk, 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 talk and, and, and never be afraid of of talking and sharing experiences, which is what we've done, Pips, isn't it? I know, it is. It's been Absolutely. lovely today. Thank you. Um, how do you keep up your physical health? I have a husband who is basically the fitness police. As I'm looking out now to our little London garden and he is doing all sorts of strange stuff I and mean, he doesn't stop he but for him he needs to exercise every day it, he he gets sort of stressed if he doesn't and um so he's a great influence on me and how do you take charge of your financial health again um, a lot of help from my husband because I um probably spend too much my team in f1 get the giggles about me because they're like I, 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 if I've got it, I want to spend it on other people as well. I, you know, I get that from, from my dad. He's just really generous and like sort of stupidly so sometimes. So Wiggy, my husband reigns me in. Um, but I suppose, yeah, not living beyond your means. I mean, I know that sounds such an obvious thing to say, but, um, it's, it's as simple as that, isn't it? And what about spiritual health? I love to meditate. Uh, I don't make enough time for it. Um, but, uh, again, I think you kind of feed the soul and nurture the spirit by friendships and, uh, and family and love and, and, and touch. I mean, I'm so sort of physical. I, I kiss and cuddle my kids to such a ridiculous extent. And that's when I, you know, it's like a drug, isn't it? You want to stick your nose into their necks and smell them <laughs> and it just makes you feel amazing. Well, Natalie, thank you so much for coming on Profoundly. Uh, it has been an absolute pleasure to chat to you and I really appreciate you giving up your time. And yeah, it's, thank you so much for coming on. Pips, you're a superstar. Thank you for having me. Oh, I thoroughly enjoyed chatting to Natalie. And if you would like any further support around baby and pregnancy loss, you can visit tommies.org. Now, each week here at Fem Foundry, we share with you our content pillars, financial physical, mental and spiritual health. And this week, British and Commonwealth rhythmic gymnastic champion, former model and dancer Aisha McKenzie is here to share some advice on physical health. Obviously, one of our pillars is physical health. Um, How important is it for us to keep active? It is so important to keep your body active. I cannot explain. When your body's active, you feel good. No, that is the long and short of it. And active is whatever you choose that to be. Some people's active will be going into a hit class or jumping on a bike. Other people's active will just be taking a walk. There is no right. There is no wrong. You just want to raise your heart rate up so that your blood is pumping fast around your body, nourishing all of your cells and um, keeping your keeping yourself just feel physically fit Mm. and what would you say to someone who's perhaps struggling to find the time or the motivation to work out uh small and often i think that you know sometimes you like even look at a class schedule you're like oh i definitely don't have time for that and i've not got time to go there and and change and do all of the things and so it just gets totally wiped off and that was obviously great thing that happened over the course of us all being in our in our homes was that all of these different possibilities came to really 
workout at home. And what I've seen is that there are incredible platforms that do even like 10 minute short bursts. And again, it's like, if you don't have 10 minutes, then something is wrong in how you are organizing your life. So taking short little classes and building up and building up and building up, I think that's, that's the way, that's the way forward. Wise words coming from Aisha McKenzie there. We can all find 10 minutes. Make sure you take yours. Now, you can continue this conversation over on the Fem Foundry app. Uh, do give us a rate and subscribe to Profoundly if you can. You can find us on Instagram at app or at pips underscore Taylor. A huge thanks for listening and I'll see you next week. Thank you.